Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Recovery Radio, where we discuss substance abuse treatment and recovery. You can listen live at blogtalkradio.com forward slash OCG radio. Please note that the views and opinions of our hosts and guests are not necessarily the views of OCG, nor is it meant to replace professional advice or the advice of your physician. And now, here's our show, Roach on Recovery, with your host, Roach. Welcome, welcome, folks. Back to Roach on Recovery. We've been off almost a month. Is that you, Mr. Producer? That's exactly right. Uh, at least a month, huh? Yep, and we are starting off this show with technical difficulties. What, what else? That is, uh, that is becoming expect, part of the expect. course. But I'm hoping that with uh, some new hardware at my disposal here in my location that these technical difficulties will be a thing of the past. Well, I have them on my end also because I have a terrible echo. I don't know if it could, you can hear it, but um, as long as no one else can hear it, I can deal with it. Um, yeah, no, sounds clear and clean over here. All right, that's all I care about. I'll just hear myself speak in one of my ears. I guess it's like having a... There you go, you'll get a double dose. Your own personal producer in one of your ears, like they do on television. Um, Yeah, it's been about a month. All right. Uh, All right, it's a a long time, it's a long layoff. Uh, What's the excuse, man? Uh... What's your problem? Why haven't you gotten us on sooner? Shouldn't we have gone last week? We were supposed to be on last week, but um, as you know, the show starts at 
4 o'clock Pacific time, 7 o'clock Eastern. And I got a frantic phone call at 3.57 from our humble co-host and producer uh, that he was uh, not feeling well. Uh, Claims of a mysterious back injury. So... I can uh, yeah. only speak I can only speak to what's the word on the street. Um and you know your wife can either confirm or deny or what have you, but I'm gonna tell I'm gonna say what the word on the street was. Um I don't know if it came from the neighbor across the street or whomever. No, everybody's watching everybody now. But That's uh right. I think they saw you and your wife uh, come home from grocery shopping and, you know, bringing in the groceries and you happen to just be carrying one thing, which was a big bag of, uh, you know, bounty paper towels. And somehow by carrying that, you strained your back while your wife is weighted down with three bags on each, on each arm. I would hope, so, man, whoever... You know, could have given me a little more credit. Maybe I was carrying like one case stacked on top of another of the six gallons of Crystal Geyser. No, give they me, said all they saw was a big, big bag of bounty paper towels. And in one hand, keys in the other, and the wife struggling to get up the stairs with three heavy bags in each arm. <laughs> And then oh, they saw you walk. Is, they yeah, saw you a, walk back out, clutching your. That, that's being painted. They saw you walk back out the house, clutching your lower back. After that. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, that's a rough, so that's a rough of, and brutal, brutal shot right there, brutal image for sure. <laughs> uh, well, man, I do. Yeah, I, we, uh, go ahead. Go ahead, my friend. I didn't. I didn't put any credence to it, you know, pro or con. I just kind of looked at the timeline and said, "Hmm," you know. And then they kind of described to me what they saw, and you know, I put two and two plus three together, and you know, I said, "Okay, well, he hurt his back carrying a bounty. Could have been worse. <laughs> he could have been carrying Charmin." <laughs> And that's the uh, the ultra plush on the three ply, and that's three not heard on the street. Oh yeah, no, we uh we have uh, as unfortunate as it is, have been having some uh, some back difficulty. That said, it actually feels pretty good now. Um, I have, as you well know, I have been going to the chiropractor, and you have heated the advice that you gave me about listening to the body while going through sessions at the chiropractor. And uh, for the most part, my back has felt relief and has felt good, but maybe once every couple of months I will get a flare-up of which the severity can range. And last week, um, yeah, I missed a couple days, Monday and Tuesday, and it's a unique pain. It doesn't really feel like any kind of muscle strain like you pulled your lower back, but like a nerve pain, I guess is the best way to describe it, that really doesn't even hurt in the back. I know that that's where it begins, but really just hurts all through the backside of my left leg. 
from my lower back down to my knee, and it's I'm changing positions in the car every 30 seconds. It's it's pretty uncomfortable, and I know you know you've had your run-in with the back the back issues. So I always try and seek your advice when it comes to back stuff. But for the most part, the chiropractor it has felt better since going, but it it was pretty bad last week for sure. Mm-hmm. But that's yes, it. We're here. We're making it happen. Uh, the back feels better this week. There's still some pain, but it's infrequent, and the intervals from which I have it feel to a point where it makes me feel uncomfortable are pretty long, so maybe a couple times, a handful of times a day, not too bad. Um, the other week it was it was constant. Also, uh, we have a director within the organization who knows of some acupuncturists in the East Bay and has given me some of their contact info and uh, that may be something else that I would dabble in. But enough about my back. Enough about backs in general. In the past month, we did promise the viewers that we would uh, do a little draft recap. If my studio was open, I would drop the sound bite, but my computer uh, is in the process of what looks like will be a long-term freeze. Uh, so you can insert mentally the NFL sound bite here. And uh, shall we hit them with a little draft recap? Well, let me see if I can find it for you. We uh, we actually have it stored in the studio. How is that? Beautiful. Beautifully done, beautifully done. I will. Uh, I only have one team to speak about, and we Go will ahead. save the best for last. So why don't we let you speak about the uh, the three teams that you had your eye on, and maybe a brief recap of how you felt each team did, your excitement level about potential first rounders. So briefly, uh, I was very disappointed with the New York Giants uh, not upgrading their offensive line and or uh, getting a running back. Um, Unfortunately, there was a domino effect in the first 10 picks with the Chicago Bears uh, uh, drafting a future all-time bust in in Mitch Trubisky, which kind of uh, shook up the table for everybody else drafting uh, behind them because uh, word on the street that your Niners weren't even – going to take uh, Solomon Page from Stanford. Uh, They had their eye on somebody else, but the dominoes happened to fall differently, and they kind of, quote-unquote, settled for Solomon Page, um, which was a good safe pick. Um, I was hoping my Jets would be able to get Leonard Fournette, but they went with a safety, which... Okay, I'm okay with. And uh, the Cowboys picking number 28, uh, some character, or as my Sunday school teacher would say, character, by the name of Taco Charlton. Uh, That's right. I t- let me just tell you, he better he better be he better do something because I got a nickname waiting for him. So. Okay. 
we shall see when training camp starts if uh if Taco will remain his his uh his his name. All right. Well, I, I would eagerly uh, await the unveiling of the nickname should he become a bust. Uh, but yeah, I would hope with a name like that that he would pan out to something worth the pick invested. Uh, By the way, the Forty Niners before you go, his first GM draft. Go ahead. Before you go, um, isn't it ironic how we use the word bust? Every guy that plays the game is at some point in their career hoping that they get a bust in Canton? That, that is indeed ironic, the play on words there. That's, mm-hmm. that's true. You'd think that being a bust was a good thing if that was the mm-hmm. context with which we looked at it. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah, interesting enough. Uh, All right. Go ahead. About those Niners. Yeah, so Mr. Lynch definitely impressed not only the local fans, but the local and national media. Uh, Everyone's the Niners uh, performed better in the draft than all other 31 teams. Uh, With Mr. Lynch at the joysticks, uh, yeah, we had the number two pick. Everybody knew Miles Garrett was going number one. And we traded with Chicago. We just swapped places. They were going to pick third, and we were going to pick second. And we were indeed going to draft Solomon Thomas with the second pick. And the Bears traded. I guess they might have thought we were going to draft Trubisky, which we were not planning on. And so we got the pick we wanted anyway, and in addition, snared a couple of late-round picks, which Mr. Lynch then used to parlay into an additional late first-round pick to draft Reuben Foster, who everyone had. I mean, he was the Buckets Award winner, uh, best linebacker in college. And many people had him ranked as a top five or top ten talent, uh, but concerns about a shoulder injury. And uh, I don't know if you heard this, Mr. Producer, but the Saints were actually on the phone with Reuben Foster uh, with their 31st pick. Uh, telling Mr. Foster, we're going to draft you with 31. Welcome to the Saints, as pick 30 was on the clock. And under the Saints' nose flew Mr. Lynch to trade up to the pick that was on the clock. And uh, Ruben Foster recalls being on the phone with the Saints and then getting a call from the 49ers. And the call from the 49ers was, congratulations, you're a 49er, we've drafted you number 30, and he says he didn't even bother to click back over to the Saints to say, uh, thank you for the call, he just hung out on the Saints, and now he is a 49er, so things can happen that quickly in the war room. Uh, but I am very, very impressed and pleased with our draft. Obviously, uh, this this draft was not to become a contender instantly because that's not the position we're in, which is why I don't even mind the shoulder injury to Reuben Foster. If he can't play, I wouldn't even care if he had to be shut down the whole season. Uh, you're mm-hmm. not looking to win this season anyway, but you definitely got a lot of, uh, I don't know if equity is the word, but just a lot of bang for your buck uh, in the draft. So I'm pleased. I'm impressed. You know, Jimmy Johnson once said, it's not about having the picks. It's about picking the bright players with those picks. So That's right. That's right. 
He's got a lot of picks stored up. Um, what's the other team that has a lot of picks stored up? Cleveland. Cleveland had a ton of picks stored up, and people think that they did well. Uh, obviously, Miles Garrett was the clear, uh, clear-cut number one pick. There wasn't much suspense there. But they, with the 13th pick, uh, was it Deshaun Watson? Who did what, that was the quarterback that they drafted? No, he Deshaun Watson went to the Texans. That's right. They drafted one of the high-profile quarterbacks. I want to say. And maybe that was with their second-round pick. But um, Cleveland looks like they did well. And, hey, don't sleep on that uh, Jets safety, the safety out, I believe, LSU. Uh, no, I, 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 I'm not, had I'm my not, fingers crossed that instead of Solomon Thomas, we were going to draft that safety because he looks like a heat-seeking missile out there. Uh, so the Jets I'm got not, a good one. I'm not sleeping on the safety. I don't, I, it's, I'm, I'm just saying um, – you can get a safety. Their needs to me. Yeah, either get the running back or rebuild the offensive line. Yeah, one okay. of the two. True enough. Fair enough. Uh, no, anything else to update the audience on? I assume that you were waiting to give me the feedback on the seven five seven, so you could do that on air. As yeah, I do. I actually have that. Yeah, I have that. On the radio show here, where uh, I like to uh, instill the the fear of God in me whenever I'm about to take a trip. Yep, I got it written down right here. Seven fifty-seven seems to uh, be on the uh, air emergency and air disaster shows, and a lot in Central America flying into mountains. Don't I don't get it. Don't understand it. But uh, other than that, <laughs> you watch uh, the shows. Boy. You've seen them. True. And they all start out with the same, you know, almost like a John Fashenda uh, voice talking about how uh, super advanced they are, etc. Basically, <laughs> flies itself, but somehow still ends up in the side of a Central American mountain. <laughs> Oh, yeah, we have seen the show, that that episode particularly, yes. Yes, indeed. So, but on the serious side, um, I love the 757, and pilots love the 757 because Boeing, I say accidentally, but I'm sure they would never say we don't do anything by accident, uh, overpowered the aircraft, so it's almost like a damn rocket going down the runway. Um, the only negative for me personally is that it's a single aisle plane, so it's not as roomy as I would like it unless you get certain seats. But in terms of, uh, you know, just power and cruise and, and, and safety other than the Central American mountains, um, beautiful aircraft. Uh, you say single aisle, but I imagine three seats uh, per aisle, three, yeah? Yeah, three and three. So y'all are going to have uh, some busybody in your row. Okay. Uh, yeah, well, the wife has made a, has made a sacrifice um, because she likes to sit uh, on the window, which is actually fine with me, especially if it's a two 
um, two seats per aisle. Uh, but obviously, probably she's not a fan of sitting in the middle. But as you well know, when you are over six feet tall, uh, you gotta get an aisle seat unless you're flying first class or business class uh, for that extra leg room. And uh, so she has, in the past, now what we do, uh, she's sacrificing on the trips to allow me to sit in the aisle, and she will be in the middle, meaning uh, whoever party number three is will be uh, riding in the window. Now, did I read correctly? You sent me a copy of the first leg, the the first, like your 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 departure. Itinerary. What about Mr. it, producer? Is that what you sent me? Your de- your that departure is, itinerary. Uh, yeah, two and this this is a this is not the Europe itinerary. Oh, okay. This is a okay. yeah. This is okay. uh one of the the brains as she's. Uh, formerly known on this show. One of her college friends, uh, one of her better college friends is getting married, and we were invited to the wedding. Okay. Uh, so this is like a little a little four-day four day trip uh, to Detroit. So we will be, uh, the 757 will be taking us to Detroit uh, nonstop and then nonstop back from Detroit into SFO. I guess oh, United, this- I don't know. I remember talking to you about this. Maybe they don't fly to Detroit or for whatever reason we ended up taking Delta because one of Delta's main hubs is in Detroit. Um, But, yeah, uh, this is just to and from Detroit. So that is the entire leg, not just the first leg. You will be receiving the itinerary for the the big summer trip later on down the road. Okay. No, No worries with the 757. No worries. I like that. That's good to hear. And so, should I uh, be prepared, not in a not in a bad way, but be prepared to feel like extra thrust on the takeoff since this plane is so powerful? Yeah. As a matter of fact, um, at John Wayne International Airport down in Santa Barbara, even though the airport was there before these expensive homes. <clears throat> They've complained enough over the years that the larger jets, and it's not a big airport, so compare it to maybe like San Jose and maybe a little smaller okay. than that. But this, sure. it's big enough to for a 757 to land. Um, and when they take off from there, they have to uh, bring the engines up to full throttle while the brake is still on, then release the brake. So they can get up to takeoff speed as quickly as possible, steep climb up and out to reduce the noise for those expensive homes underneath that weren't there when the airport was there, which is would always be my argument. You moved there knowing that there was an airport, and then you want to complain about the air, airplane noise. And then right. so when it climbs, when it climbs out real steep, and it gets to a certain distance from the airport. They obviously cut the engines down, and if you're not sure. used to it, it feels like the engines have just been cut off. 
when they've just re- reduced power back to almost a little bit above idle to maybe so they can cruise at 200 miles an hour till they get to where you know their altitude that they need to get to. Right. It's crazy. So that's where the, the the pilots use the rocket expression because it's like a rocket when they get off when they get off the brake. Oh wow! Yeah. Well, nice. I look forward to that. Hopefully, uh, hopefully SFO doesn't have that same issue, and we can we can feel what that no, no, cooking no, with. No, 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 no. SFO doesn't have that problem. You guys just coming in over the water. The other thing I like about the 757 it is even though it's a single aisle plane. It's big enough that if there's weather problems, wind or you know how they are SFO, if there's a little bit of rain or a little bit of fog, if if visibility isn't 15 miles clear, you know how they like to slow things down. Yeah. And that plane is just large enough where they'll allow it to go because it can, you know, it can handle the wind gusts and all that stuff. Okay. That actually might come into play on the way back because the weather report is that on Sunday when we fly back from Detroit, they're expecting thunderstorms. Where? Thunderstorms so, where? Uh, in Detroit. Oh. On, uh, on Sunday, that's when we fly back. So it sounds like hopefully that jet can uh, power right through such, a, such an event. If that, sh- if that happens to be the case. Yeah, it might be bumpy going over the Great Lakes. Yes, but indeed. That's it on the 757. All right. Well, great. Uh, shouldn't be too bad uh, as per usual since the wife and I know you are fan, a major fan of flying in the airplanes. We'll send you some photos of the runways and such when we get to SFO, um, and that'll be that. It's bright and early. I don't know why we ended up doing this, but our flight leaves at 6 or something like that, so we have to be to the airport by 4 a.m., so we'll be waking up at 3, uh, I guess because of the time change going to the East Coast. She didn't want to miss a whole day of travel. Uh which I tried to explain, we're going to miss anyway. Having woken up at 3 a.m., by the time we land, we'll be zombies. But it is what it is. You'll receive some photos from the airports. What do we have in store for the topic of the day? I'm still trying to load the studio here. Um, topic today, sabotage and the saboteurs. Um, did you try uh, closing out of the studio, closing the browser down and reboot the browser? From scratch. Oh, absolutely. Uh, in fact, our IT gentleman was just here not too long ago and suggested as he was watching me go through this, closing everything out and rebooting the whole computer, uh, which I just did. And the computer is now back on and back in the blog talk and now attempting to load the studio again. So we'll see. I will keep you and the audience informed. Okay. Um. So I've been thinking about this topic for a very long time because as you know from your experience, from my experience, just being around recovery, uh, we see in many, through all different stages of the recovery process, um, clients 
sabotage themselves. And then we also see clients who are, quote-unquote, victims of sabotage. So when I say saboteurs, I'm not only talking about the clients themselves who self-sabotage, but sometimes they have external assistance either uh, directly or indirectly, consciously or subconsciously, that uh, contributes to the sabotage of their recovery process. Um, I guess the, the the first experience with this for me is uh, as a resident of Swan Lake, when they are doing a general meeting, and you, as you know, a general meeting is for individuals in treatment who have violated serious rules of the community and of the family, and they're put before the family to account for themselves and the family gets an opportunity to address them and uh, hold them to account for their behavior. That's right. The counselors and directors at the time, I tell you, did a wonderful job in terms of creating the suspense that you would walk in and and as you're experiencing the general meeting as a as a resident sitting there it wasn't a question of is this person going to stay it's how long this meeting is going to go before they put them on the van to go home right that's so that's how well constructed the meeting was psychologically that it was just automatically based on how things were going this person was not staying. And even if you sat through numerous meetings, and, and I would say numerous being three or four, that would be a, a significant amount over a 12-month period if you, if you experienced three or four general meetings. So even if you've sat in one before or two before, each time you sit in one, it's not like you would say from before, oh, well, I know what's going to happen, blah, blah, blah. No, it's the way they set it up and – especially the person with the skill level the way they're doing it, you don't know what's going to happen. And every right. now and then they throw a little curveball in there and throw the person out to really make you think. And as we, we now know of uh, working on the other side, that sometimes you have to make a decision for environmental purposes you know, so sometimes right. there's a sacrificial lamb that has to be served up, um, and rightfully so. It wouldn't be someone that we would feel, you know, should get a second chance, but someone who, no, they don't deserve a second chance or third chance or fourth chance, and they're going to be the sacrificial lamb to send the environmental message to everybody else. So right. those decisions don't get they, those decisions don't get made lightly, of course. So we know we have clients that self-sabotage at various stages of the treatment experience and the recovery experience. Um, For example, I would say 75, 80% of people coming into treatment, it may be higher, so I'm just using a conservative number. 80% of people coming into treatment 
walking in the door do not feel positive about their recovery chances. So they're walking in with a... Accurate, even though that's just a guess? Yeah. So they're not walking in the door thinking that they're going to be successful. 80% of them at least. So it's a hope that through a, a process that that changes mentally and psychologically to from a negative view to a positive view that, hey, I can do it from can I do this, will I do this, to I am going to do this. I mean, I can do this and I am going to do this. But when they come in the door, the majority of them don't feel that way. So they're already behind the eight ball when it comes to sabotage in the first place. Now, we would normally discount anything that happens in the first trimester because we know what that's about. Absolutely. People getting used to the treatment experience, people you know, coming down from whatever drugs they've been abusing, and trying to get their body right, mind right, everything, you know, back in some kind of appropriate biorhythms. So the first 90 days, you kind of put to the side for that. But once someone gets going consistently, so there hasn't been like a break in, in the treatment, and they've been in this recovery thing for 90 days, 120 days, 180 days, etc., they kind of got a little bit of knowledge under their belt, a little bit of understanding about themselves under their belt. Um, whether or not they're speaking is a different story, but we kind of know that they've learned something by that time. But I've always thought to myself, what happens to the person when something triggers that first significant craving not the thinking but the actual craving where they're ready to walk out the door and and actually one of our uh x-files questions speaks to that so we'll talk about that a little bit later um so that person within that time frame to me doesn't necessarily if they make the, the, the decision and it's a bad decision, and they end up relapsing. I don't put them under the category of they sabotaged. Okay. I think I agree with you there. For me, it's a person who has kind of crossed over that Mendoza line of that 180-day, that six-month line, so to speak, where they now have enough information enough understanding and they've kind of reached that moment in time where they got to make a decision if they haven't made it already about what they're going to do with their life. Are they going to do this recovery thing or are they going to continue to play games on the other side of the fence? There are people who want recovery. They're serious about it and they're on the other side of that Mendoza line, that six month line heading toward month seven, eighth, and ninth, and they could be in any modality of treatment. They can still be in residential or they can be an outpatient. Um, but all of a sudden, they start to see this little pinpoint of light at the end of the tunnel. And that light's represented by 
people like us talking about, you know, the future, the upcoming transition. They're going to be leaving this place, whatever it may be, soon. Um, talking about what what are your plans, what are your life goals, et cetera, et cetera. So we're kind of shifting their thinking away from the the day-to-day aspects of treatment to the day-to-day aspects of life and, uh, you know, what's going to happen in your life. Boy, does that kick off the anxiety and the fear alarms. Start looking around (laughs) behind you. Wait wait a minute now. (laughs) I was just getting comfortable here. You're talking about transitioning leaving, planning, setting goals for outside of here. So that creates a little bit of anxiety, worry, concern. Can I I touch on that point? Sure. I have always found it to be that it only creates anxiety in those clients who have made some sort of commitment um, to making some sort of healthy or positive change. Uh, you know, there, there are definitely clients, you know, in, in all programs out there who are in there to um, put on a good show, to do what they have to do to get back out, don't have the intent to change. And for them, there, there is r- really no anxiety to speak of as it pertains to planning for the future, for uh, phasing out, for going back home. And that's usually a red flag for me, for someone who's been in the field for a little while, it's a tell, like you're showing your hand a little bit. Those clients who come to me and have concerns, have that anxiety that you speak of, have that fear, a little bit of trepidation, those are the clients that I tend to feel like, you know what, you only you only have fear or anxiety about something if the result is important to you. Uh, if the result is unimportant, then there is nothing to fear because the, the outcome does not mean anything. But if you are anticipating something and you have a desired result, that's when fear sets in because you're afraid of not getting the result that you have intended to get or that you seek or desire to have. Uh, and it's so that anxiety and I'm sure you would have or or will expound upon this, is actually healthy if utilized properly. And to me, outside the lines, it's just kind of a good sign when a client has that. When they don't, that's usually a red flag for me. Yeah, the anxiety in and of itself is not a negative thing in this context that we're talking about it, because as you said, it indicates that They kind of understand the seriousness of, you know, the the process and moving through the process and moving through the different transitions of the recovery process. And and some put you into different aspects of the recovery life than others. Um, So as we always reference back numerous times to the um, different trimesters, when you get into that, uh, you know, the latter part of that second trimester and that third trimester of the recovery process, um, 
you know, things get serious. Because we, we're trying to move your thinking outside of the, you know, if you're in residential, outside of the residential box thinking um, into, okay, outside the, the real world, society, and what are your plans, what are your goals, how are you going to go about accomplishing those goals, what are those steps, what are the methods you're going to use, et cetera, et cetera. So it gets people thinking on a different track. So that obviously creates a little bit of anxiety. So sometimes people handle the anxiety inappropriately. Obviously we say, we always say, talk about your feelings. And we don't just mean that for those in the first trimester that are there zero to 90 days. Even if you have nine months of recovery under your belt, it still applies. Talk about what you're going through. Talk about your feelings. So we would expect that if a a significant transition is coming up around the corner, that you would talk to your peers, those who you're close to, about what that means to you and how you feel about that, what you think about that. However, for some, what happens is they keep the feelings to themselves, experience the anxiety, okay? The anxiety begins to just compound, almost like compound interest. Just compound, compound, compound. It gets worse. And then they start to negatively respond to the anxiety and make bad decisions. Now, some of the decisions are subconscious, some of them are conscious. I'm sure you are aware that over the years we've had people that we've come to learn or just knew in advance that they would purposely do something so they wouldn't have to leave. That's right. That's right. And we didn't even have to ask them. We, we knew that they purposely did what they did so that they wouldn't have to leave. Of course, that would not work today. That was a different time. Um, but that was their way of showing us, you know, I'm scared. I don't know how to handle it. Um, and, of course, uh, it didn't stop us from uh, – putting the foot in their back and pushing them right out the door and say, nope, you got to face it. There's no running and there's no hiding. So those would be the ones who would consciously try to sabotage their recovery process. But let me talk a little bit about the saboteurs, not the self-saboteurs. Oftentimes, we've discussed on this show about um, how the women are underrepresented in treatment. Um, And we know, we talked about the reasons why. We know the majority of women that do make it into treatment come in with significant trauma. And we also know that the reality of the residential environment, especially co-ed, which is basically non-existent now, but 10, 15 years ago, you know, co-ed residential facilities were commonplace. And, and women that were in co-ed facilities 
had to be on on the guard because the reality is that there were a certain uh, persons of the male gender who, like a, a a lion on the Serengeti, could could smell a <laughs> female that you know was did not feel good about herself and was just giving off those vibes of of, of weakness, whatever they may be. And this person whose agenda in treatment was not where it needed to be, obviously, would uh, pounce on, on these women like uh, they were gazelles in the, on the open Serengeti. <laughs> Wounded at that. And, right. And so what would often happen is if, if, if anything untoward took place, Nine and a half times out of ten, if there was anyone who ended up leaving the program as a result, it was the female, which always bothered me. And I, I guess it's because I raised girls that it always bothered me. But it, for whatever reason, the females always left. Very rare was it that the male left. When things came, you know, when it all came out in the open, what was transpiring, and now it was time to just deal with it, okay? You know, the guys had no problem staying, and I kind of know why, And but the females, we would lose them. And so... It is very true. I remember many of those occasions... So that, that those are examples of where you have you know, an external person contributing to sabotaging somebody's treatment. You know, even though, yes, it takes two to tangle and so on and so forth, but uh, the way we look at it in the treatment context is you're, even though both parties are in treatment, okay, treatment, especially the residential environment, is just a microcosm of society. And so you're going to get the quote-unquote predator males that until, you know, the mind shifts away from that type of thinking, that type of behavior, so on and so forth, they're going to find someone to take advantage of. And oftentimes the female doesn't want to stay and, and deal with decisions that she's made contributing to the you know incident etc so we lose them so in a sense you know i guess someone looking at it objectively can say well you know both parties made a decision that sabotaged their treatment ultimately um but me personally i kind of add on to that that because the women are underrepresented, because they come in with so much trauma, because they're, um, um, that trauma creates certain weaknesses in, 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 in character and in how they feel about themselves and so on and so forth. And the sad reality is that, that in treatment or not in treatment, guys pick up on that and try and take advantage of it. And if they succeed, we end up losing the female from the treatment. So I count that as a, uh, however you want to term it, a, an assisted sabotage or, <laughs> or whatever. Uh, the, the old school hockey assist. 
<laughs> so <clears throat> I think I can I can I can make that argument because I can always go back to this question. Would the female client have left the treatment environment if this incident did not occur? And unless someone can tell me something that the and they could predict the future and say the answer would have been yes, I would always default to no, they wouldn't have left. Yeah. So, the other external saboteurs are family members who put pressure on clients, whether it be spouses, hey, I need you at home, you know, it's very hard to deal with the children. Um, I need help, whether it be financial or in other fashions. So pressure from family, pressure from parents, especially people who um, were you know, helping parents or supporting parents and so on and so forth. And oftentimes it's not uh, direct pressure, but self-inflicted pressure, um, maybe a little guilt sprinkled in there also. But those external things contributing towards a sabotage of the treatment and recovery experience. Yeah. Along with the spouse, you got the girlfriends and the boyfriends, quote unquote, <clears throat> that will also uh, put, put pressure. I think, uh, Mr. Producer, I remember, uh, I don't know if it was in the first year we are doing the show and I talked about how, uh, when I went into treatment, I purposely didn't tell any of my friends because I knew that they would try and talk me out of it. Oh, yeah, no, I don't know if I ever have heard you mention that. Oh, yeah. Would they have succeeded? Who knows? But I did not want to chance it, so I purposely did not tell right. any of them. Uh, only told my sisters and my parents. Um, I don't know if I told my brothers. I don't remember, but just family, my you know, immediate family, and that was it. And my friends had no idea what happened to me. Where I, you know, I just disappeared. Yeah. So. That's a smart way to do it. I mean, you well, in anticipation it, of, like you said. Who knows if they would have succeeded, but why Why tempt it? Right. Right. And that was for me. I'm not speaking about anyone else, but for me, that's what I needed to do for myself. And so to eliminate any possibility of having any external sabotage. Now, if I would have decided at the last minute, oh, I'm not that bad. Do I really need to go into treatment? Then that would have been self me self sabotaging. True. Yeah. There's also different groups of clients. We have adolescents, which sits over there all by itself with all of its own. And I also then put all the way on the other side, the people who've been out there living the addict life 10 years plus. 
Now, the adolescents, so with those two groups on the far outside, then you have all the people in the middle. But those two groups on the far outside, I always ask this rhetorical question, but it doesn't have to be rhetorical today, is which one of those two groups, the adolescent or the, the, the adult that's been ripping and running for the last 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, which one of those two has the more difficult time in the treatment experience? I would first ask you to qualify the word difficult. Very good. And before I qualify it, I'm going to say why I said that's very good. And this is the reason why I separate those two out and have everyone else in the, the mushy middle. On one side with the adolescent, I default to just the plain difficulty of being an adolescent and right. then trying to be in treatment at the same time and, and learning about yourself and your feelings and all that stuff while going through age 14, 15, 16, and 17. Unbelievably difficult. I told them all the time, I don't know if I could have done what they were doing at that age. Then on the other hand, you have the adults and the typical one that I'm looking at is they're in their mid to late 40s. They've been out there a while, ripping and running, doing their thing, living that life, the addictive, the addict life, and they're, t- they're tired. And they finally make it into treatment, and they say, okay, I'm, I'm ready. But there always comes a time when they hit a wall and it's usually somewhere between that first and second trimester where they hit a wall that kind of tests that are they really sick and tired? Are they really ready? Now you yourself haven't worked with adults as long. um, But let's say you had no experience working with adults. Would you think that describing that type of person in treatment, that their motivation would be so high, their desire for sobriety and recovery be so high that they'd be able to power through that wall consistently in terms of numbers speaking just to one individual client like on any well, in I kind context, of, I, we're saying a client coming in with supreme motivation to get clean having the intestinal fortitude if you will to push through the proverbial wall that everybody hits while they're in treatment no, what I was doing, I was asking you kind of a question in comparison to the adolescent. Because remember, you asked me to uh, define yeah, difficult. Difficult. So I kind of I've drawn for you the difficulty that an adolescent would have, and yeah. the difficulty that a person who walking in the door you would think would have high motivation. So I kind of described right. what the motivating factors would be. 
but from right. experience, experience working with adults, that a lot of those persons in that typical description hit a wall. And the question I'm throwing back to you is, do you think that the majority of them consistently fight through that? Or do is it 50-50 that some are unsuccessful with fighting through and as a result fall back into their addiction? Just what would you guess? I'd say that the majority fight through it. Yeah, barely. It is a majority, but yeah. it's not a significant majority. Yeah, I would agree with and, that. And it's and that's it's not to ever, say that those who do fall into that slight majority, they just because they battle through it doesn't necessarily mean they don't go out and fall back into the same old stuff anyway. They just happen to, at that moment in time in treatment, punch through that low, if you will. Yes. Yeah, we're not speaking about ultimate outcome, but yes. Right. And it's always been puzzling um, for us because <clears throat> I think anyone, if you ask a lay person on the street, what could be more motivating than, you know, the life you've been leading for the last 15, 20 years and you're, you know, your body's broken down. It needs re- needs recovery time, needs rebuilding time, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, because as you know, with the adolescents, their thinking is that they're indestructible. Right. Of course. They're coming, they're coming into their prime, you know, years of 18 to 25. So when we're telling them, trying to, you know, preach to them, teach to them, educate them on changing their ways, their thinking and behavior, they're like, dude, I'm just getting started. Not in terms of their, you know, the negative stuff, but in terms of just living. And we're trying to slow them down. I think a normal person would think, well, that person is 45, 50 years old. That's been out there 20 years that person would be highly motivated and, and the likelihood is that, you know, they'd be able to fight through, you know, any down periods, any walls that they face, et cetera. Um, when the reality is, is that it's a slim majority of them that actually do do that. Um, it's surprisingly high, the amount of people that don't fight through that wall, that that's their typical description in terms of their addict profile. That's just puzzling to me. I would think it would be a yeah. high motivation. Um, I always used to think that the threat of jail or prison was a high motivation. Until one client who was a, a journeyman carpenter. Um, so in terms of your typical client who, who's you're trying to rebuild from scratch mentally, physically, emotionally, psychologically, spiritually, vocationally, he wasn't that. If this guy can yeah. get a hold of recovery and keep it, him him making money and, and finding employment was not an issue for him as a journeyman carpenter. But he got three chances from the same judge. And on the third chance, the judge said, if I see you in my courtroom again, the suspended sentence that you have for 15 years in San Quentin is going to go into effect. 
And this guy came into our program for that third try and made it all the way to phase four and made a bad decision and ended up back in front of that judge. So even the threat of 15 years in prison was not enough. It took me a while to, yeah. to grasp to grasp that, that that would not be enough motivation to keep someone on the straight and narrow. That lets you know how strong that pull is. I was just going, you know, I was just going to interrupt you and say that for those folks out there who, uh, you know, maybe have a difficult time wrapping their mind around why someone can't just stop, and then you hear a story like that, and to any rational human being, uh, you don't have to threaten me with 15 days of San Quentin, let alone 15 years, to... Uh, to do whatever it is that's being asked of me, and the right. idea that that still was not enough to make happen what needed to happen lets you know just how strong it is, for sure. Mm-hmm. Yep. So, clients will consciously and subconsciously sabotage. We talked about the conscious one. The subconscious one's for me, are the ones who aren't doing any work and not realizing by not doing any work, not putting yourself out there, not sharing um, your life experiences, whatever they may be, good, bad, or ugly, that the consequence of that is that you're sabotaging your treatment. Now, we don't say that to them, but in essence, that is what they're doing. Subconsciously. We know that's what they're doing. We don't we know that they're not purposely setting out to do that, but we know the consequence of them not engaging in their treatment is going to have that same result as someone who's like, you know what, I'm just gonna do this here, do this here because I'm not either ready or I'm scared or whatever the case may be the result ends up being the same. Yeah. So we try and we try and tell those we spend a, I mean how much time do we spend talking to those clients who are in the shadows, in the corners, etc. figuratively, not literally. Um trying to get them to come out of that shell and, and their truth is. For me, we spend a lot of our time, that's what we're doing, because we know we, if we can get them to open up and share and talk and, 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 and live in whatever their experience is, that that's the, the start of the process. Absolutely. So we spend our time to ward off self-sabotage consciously or subconsciously. 
and being on guard for the external saboteurs. <laughs> That's right. That's right. And and I will note before we wrap this up that I mean, I don't know, I'll pose the question to you, but I say myself, which do you think has more power or carries more weight? The sabotage that one does to oneself or external sabotage? The sabotage that one does to oneself because the external sabotage, we can, um, as professionals in the field, we can sometimes see it coming um, and kind of be like an offensive lineman and do a pancake block or, 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 you know, put up a wall in front to protect the client, so to speak. Um, even, for, like I said, from family members, spouse, parents, siblings, whomever, that are trying to put undue pressure on them um, for whatever reason. That's easier to do than uh, or deal with and look out for than the client who's self-sabotaging themselves. I agree. I would have to agree. I also think on some level the external sabotage cannot be given any power or weight unless there is a little self-sabotage at play on some level, conscious or subconscious. Yeah, I, I would say if if they're within that first trimester, early second trimester, they're more susceptible to the to the external, um, and so I wouldn't put it as much on them. But if they're on the latter side of the second trimester or in the third trimester, they should be strong enough to you know rebuff that and know that it's yeah. about them not about anybody else. They're the most important person in the world. And unless they get themselves together, they can be of no help to anyone else. Can't help their children, can't help their spouse, can't help their parents, can't help anyone. So they have to be the most important person in the world. It's hard to get them to, to, to believe that and, and, you know, and act, act that accordingly. I agree. It's almost counterintuitive, if, especially if they have young children. You say, well, well, no, my children are the most important. No, they're not. You are the most important person in the world. And if you act that out and take care of yourself, then you can be the best representation of yourself in taking care of your children. Otherwise, you're just going to be uh, a dry drunk or an addict, active addict, trying to take care of your children. I know we're going past the hour. Yeah, no, but that, I mean, that's a good point, and that's a solid point to make. If you cannot be there for yourself or you are not being taken care of or in your right state of mind, you are no good to anybody anyway. Yep.
before we close, um, one of our uh, longtime listeners posted um, some photographs on Facebook. She attended a spiritual seminar given by two uh, old giants of Daytop, Michael Bosch, who used to be a spiritual director. Okay. What a great job. What a great job to have, spiritual director. And uh, right. our old friend Richie Falzone <laughs> from the Falzone family, uh, <laughs> my old teacher from the, my training, training experience, uh, him and Mike put on a spiritual seminar somewhere in New York, um, and she put some nice pictures of them and folks that attended the seminar. So I just wanted to put that out there. Thank you very much for posting those pictures and giving us a, a look at uh, Mike and Richie. Still going strong. Love it. So, so that's that on Sabotage and the Saboteurs. How's your studio, sir? Is it up or are you still playing with it? Oh, it is. So far from up, my friend, I can't even begin to describe to you and the audience. So um, we are uh, we are going to rely on you for our okay. beautiful top of the hour music relief. Okay. And uh, I assume you've got some callers on hold that want to participate in the recovery sport time segment. And I got a lot of X-Files uh, questions lined up. So let's take our traditional commercial break. At, we're a little bit past the top of the hour. And then come back on the other side uh, with our recovery support time. Sounds good.
Coming up next is OCG Radio's Recovery Support Time, where our hosts provide support and guidance for your recovery-related questions and issues. Recovery Support Time, where it's our time to help you. controversial ones that we're going to tackle so we don't have uh, since Mr. Producer you can't uh, screen our calls we'll have to revert to our uh, <clears throat> screenless call method that's right we're rolling the dice alright hello All right. hello welcome to Roach and Recovery can we have your first name Hi. and your hometown please uh, yes, my name is Ariel, and I'm calling from uh, Redwood City. Hi. Can you speak up just a little bit? Uh, yeah, it's Ariel from Redwood City. Can you hear me? Okay. Yep, much better. <laughs> All right. Uh, so um, the question that I have for you is um, how do you deal with when you have lost a parent in recovery? How do you deal with um, being in recovery, you know, in treatment? Like how do you deal with it and then one parent's an addict? Still in his addiction as well. Because that's you say what you I'm kind of dealing with right now. Yeah, Did I lost my mom lost on February 4th. Yeah, I okay. lost her on February 4th while I was in treatment. And um, my dad, he's currently still an addict. And sometimes it's hard for me because I want to talk to him and see him, but um, I can't. I see him in passing, but he's so bad in his addiction, it's hard for me to be around him like that. Because I'm clean. I've been clean for so long. 
so I've first of uh, almost 14 months now. Okay. Our condolences to you on the passing of your mother. Thank you. Um, so that experience did not cause you to go into relapse. No, I didn't. Correct? Right. Yes, now, correct. Do you have any children? Yes, I have two. Okay. <clears throat> Next to experiencing the loss of one of your own children, losing a parent is probably the next worst grief experience, or if you're married, a spouse. But a parent is a parent. You can't, you know, people get married and divorced, but married and divorced, but your parent's always your parent. So one of the things I want, this is all about perspective, how you look at it. And the way I think you should look at it is, wow, right here in the middle of my recovery process, I experienced this significant loss. But it didn't cause me to make a bad decision and relapse. What does that say about me? says a lot. It says a lot. Yeah. And it also says you have no excuses. Which is a good thing because if you can survive that, my hands are in quotes, when I say survive that and not use that as an excuse to go back to what you were doing, That proves to you, to yourself, you in the mirror, that, wow, whatever happens to me, I can deal with it. I can survive it. And going back to using does not have to be the solution or the method that I use to deal with it. Mm -hmm. Because you've already proven it to yourself, that you can suffer something very painful Yeah, that's right. And work your way through it. And you're still working your way through it. February wasn't that long ago. Mm-mm. No, it wasn't. So we're, we're giving you a double pat on the back. <laughs> Thank you. Okay. Now, as far as uh, dad goes... There is nothing you can do about that right now. What you have to do, and I'm just going to say to you as raw as I can, because that's the best way to say it. Mm-hmm. What you have to do is just allow your heart to break. Mm-hmm. Do you understand what I mean by that? Yeah, if you the situation with your dad, where he's at, where you're at, they're not copacetic, they cannot coexist. He's not ready to 
change his life for whatever reason. And as much as you want your dad to be there, especially now that mom is no longer there, you want your dad to be there for you, be a resource for you, be a support for you, and all of that stuff that dads are supposed to be, that's not your reality. And the way that you're able to deal with that and move forward from that is just allow your heart to break about that. And it's okay. It's okay. Thank you. You're very welcome. I also want to say I also want to say um thank you for the advice that you gave me right now. And uh thank um thank you guys for talking about the self sabotage too. Because um, I was listening to that too about the women in treatment and the um, sabotaging and the internal and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So that was really good information for me as well right now. Okay. Because I have that, I have did a lot of that in the past <laughs> in my recent going to the other treatments. Been okay. in treatment when I was younger and stuff like that. Okay. Trying to worry about the outside. But thank you. You're very welcome. Thank you so much. All right. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye. Bye-bye. Mr. Producer. Yes, sir. So that's an example of a tough situation. Absolutely. But um, simultaneous to that, it's a stepping stone. Even though the father thing is uh, difficult, but... When you're able to put underneath you that you've, you know, you know what, I've survived this experience and it didn't drive me to a negative experience, um, you got to build off of that. Right. And you have to mentally, not physically, because we don't, we don't want anyone breaking their arms, patting themselves on the back, but you have to mentally and emotionally and spiritually even, pat yourself on the back. It's very important for addicts. To, you know, It's always been said addicts are the most self-destructive people on the planet. The flip side of that is not being, uh, what's the word, not self-promoting, but um, supporting your own oneself and acknowledging when you're doing something that's positive and constructive. To yourself, you know, acknowledging it to yourself. Hey, I'm doing the right thing. It feels good. Yeah, that's a good, um, you know, there's something to be learned in every situation. And while that that the caller is dealing with was, was and is definitely tragic and will need to be coped with and very difficult to deal with, especially in an environment like this while you're going through a bunch of other things, a lot of strength can be gained from, like you said, the acknowledgement and realization that I went through maybe one of the harder things I'll ever have to go through in my life and I'm still okay, uh, that could be provide a lot of momentum to build on. Right. Exactly. 
All right, let's go back to the phones. Hi, welcome to the show. Can we have your first name and hometown, please? Hi, my name is John. I'm from Daly City. Hi, welcome. How can we help you, sir? Um, so I had a question. My question would be, what would be the best advice that you would give to a newcomer? Someone new in recovery? Yes, sir. Well, and if you're going through a treatment experience, I'll give you the same advice that someone gave me 20-something years ago. Don't leave. Hmm. Stay with it. Stick with it. No matter what happens. That's the best advice I can give you. Makes sense. Makes perfect sense, honestly. (laughs) It can be very difficult, though. Yes. Dealing with oneself is a is a scary thought and also and, uh, the, the, the har- hardest thing for someone to do. Anybody doesn't make a difference yeah. who you are to deal with the reality of you in the mirror is very difficult, mm-hmm. but not impossible. True, very true. Not impossible. Yeah, because um, with with uh, with all this new, well, it's it's a lot of information, and uh, I think um, I think it's very informative, and I think it's educational because it's important. If with uh, with wanting to change, and uh, mm-hmm. an approaching change with with the um, with the amount of information that will be helpful in me accomplishing whatever it is that I want to accomplish, which is essentially finding myself, and essentially mm-hmm. building healthy relationships and healthy boundaries, um, something that I have never had before. Mhm. Yeah, so it can be very difficult. I'll give you one more piece of advice. Through even though it will be difficult, it's difficult for everybody. Sometimes it may seem like either it or people want to make it more complicated than it is. You understand what I just said? Yes, I do. Okay. So I'm just going to repeat it anyway. It, so it can be whatever or whomever, or people can try and make it more complicated than it is. And it's not complicated, which is why it's very hard. Hmm. It's actually simple. Makes sense. I can see why you would say that, though. Yep. Uh, usually, the most simplest things are the hardest, the hardest things to do, in a sense. Yep. Depending on the, depending on the situation. Yep. Especially with one, especially with oneself. Yep. You know, tackling one's demons and uh and uh, being open and willing to, to actually look at it. I think for me, at least, that's a step in the right direction. You know, so. I How know, much uh, time do you have under your belt so far? I have about. I think it's 47 days right now. Okay. 47 days. I want you to give us a call in a couple of weeks, and my uh-huh. hope is by that time you will no longer be counting the days. Hmm. Okay. And what would – so no longer counting the days. Instead, counting what? Just focusing on – just focusing on – You're just experiencing – you're not counting. You're just experiencing. And 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 you're. Let's say if you're in a treatment environment, you're so involved mentally, 
physically and emotionally in the environment and what's going on that you lose track of outside time. So you can't rattle off real quick, oh, I've been there 35 days, 22 days, 67 days, because you've lost track. You'd have to go to a calendar and say, wait a second, how long have I been here? Oh, my goodness, I've been here almost two months already. Mm -hmm. Because you're so involved mentally, physically, and emotionally in your treatment. When you're not mentally, physically, and emotionally involved in your treatment, you can watch the clock tick tock by every day, notice every day of every week of every month. And you're not experiencing treatment then. You're just experiencing time. Makes makes perfect sense, honestly. <laughs> I never thought about okay. it like that, but that's that's some great advice. Thank you very much. I appreciate your time and your right. advice. You're welcome. Right. Bye bye. Know what I'm saying, Mr. Producer? Absolutely. It's a good one. I, you know, um, we we've had this talk about cliches, but the reason that cliches become cliches is because they're true, so they're repeated a lot. And that has been repeated around here. That's an age-old saying to the people who just got here first day, first week. Uh, you know, I've heard it myself. Nothing, nothing you can do here will be as bad as you leaving. No matter what, you don't have to like it if you choose not to participate in groups day two because you're not feeling well. If you are in the books already because you're doing X, Y, and Z, just stay. No matter what happens, just stay. And that usually pans out to be some great advice if it can be followed. Yeah. Everything else takes time. Everything else can be worked on. But just don't give up. Just see it through. True words were never spoken. I want to throw out an X-File question. When I read it, I said, oh, no, I'm not touching that one. And I said, no, no, we'll, we'll handle that. And I said, oh, no, I'm not touching it. Gone back and forth, but um, if I can find it. Let's do it. It was a couple of them. All right, here's one from Norma Jean in Castroville. I have a glass of wine every night with dinner. Does that make me an alcoholic? I can't wait to hear your take. I said, oh, no, not the glass of wine uh, comparison. (laughs) My answer to this one is so simple, and that is, if I could speak to Norma Jean, I would ask her a very simple question. Why are you asking the question? Because the very nature of asking the question, to me, answers the question. Right. But obviously, there's a much larger, larger, larger than us uh, discussion, which we're not going to hold right now, about society, culture, what's accepted, what isn't. Is it fair? Is it comparable? 
Why is something accepted versus something else not accepted? Why are there studies on both sides of, of this thing or that thing that people can argue until the end of time that one is better or worse than the other? One's legal, one's not legal, and all of that stuff is buried underneath this very question that she asks. But I will always default back to one, obviously, I want to know what's, what's really behind the question, ma'am. But secondly, could you stop if you wanted to and go a couple of weeks without having a glass of wine with every meal? And if the answer is either no or I wouldn't want to, well, that tells me all I need to know. Sure. I like your, I like, well, I was going to say, I like your first take, which is, uh, if the question has to be asked, then the answer has already been put on the table. Yeah. Um, my, uh, my grandfather, uh, probably all the way leading up until the day he passed, um, would have a glass of wine actually before dinner. So he would get home from work around five, and he he had a little kind of like a tradition to unwind from the day. He would uh, turn on uh, the computer, and he had a little free uh, apps on the computer that were games, either poker or casino or whatever it was. And he right. would get a little bowl full of mixed nuts and pour himself a glass of wine, and that was his come home from work tradition Monday through Friday. Now, I don't right. think he did that on the weekends. I can't really remember, but I know Monday through Friday, that was his thing. Um, but never once did the question ever pop into his head that, you know, am I an alcoholic as a result of this behavior? Or does this mean I have a problem? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, like you said, I think if, if it's – Occupying enough mental space for you to feel like, you know what, I ought to ask, um, then I think that that speaks volumes. Right. The other controversial question, and we'll give it, we'll get back to the phones real quick. Um, which one is it? From Peter G. Concord, California. I said, boy, do we really want to tackle this one? Will smoking medical <laughs> marijuana compromise my recovery from methamphetamine? <laughs> Let's hear it. The producer's on the spot. I can I can picture this question being asked as he's holding the bong or the, uh, what do they call it now <laughs> if they smoke? The blunt. Sure, yeah, whatever, whatever works. Um, I'll tell you how San Mateo County handled this. In their policy, they, they said, you know, if you legitimately need medical marijuana, that um, you have to use the pills. if you were going to do that and participate in one of their treatment programs, 
I should add. All right, so let's just say, for the purpose of the question being asked, that the, uh, I forget the name, but from Concord, uh, that, that that's exactly what he or she is asking. Taking the pill. Does taking medicinal marijuana in pill form compromise or jeopardize my recovery as it pertains to my meth addiction? So I was asked this question by a, a close friend a few years ago. <clears throat> Called up and specifically asked, hey, if if I do this, will will this mean that I've relapsed? And I'm gonna, my answer to that person is going to be the answer to that question. And I said, if that is ultimately you find out that is the only thing that brings you solace from what you are suffering with and uh, gives you a quality of life that you can resume some form of a quality of life, but you only use or take what's required to provide that just that quality of life, let's say it's two pills or a half a joint. Okay. Let's say that's the amount and you just stay at that. then that's fine. However, if you start going to a full blunt or two blunts or three blunts when you don't need it or three pills, four pills, five pills, when you don't need it, you've crossed over the line. Agreed. Of responsibly taking something for a legitimate reason, quote unquote, to now abusing that something for other reasons. So we used to always say, and I'm sure you remember, everyone who goes through treatment has to learn to responsibly take medication, whatever it may be. Right. Because you never know what you might find yourself with doing or what have you or needing. You have to learn to responsibly take medication, whether it's Advil or Norco or whatever, from A to Z. So the person... I agree. The person, not us looking from afar, the person knows when they've crossed over that line and they've compromised their sobriety. It's too easy for us to say, oh, you know, just because you're doing that, you've compromised. No. You know if you've compromised based on if you're abusing it versus using it appropriately to address whatever the illness is, sickness is, or whatever it is that you're using it for. That's my take. I completely agree. All I right. couldn't have said it better. And, and I think we, we actually have full dedicated shows to this kind of topic, right? Where we've talked about, you know, uh, prescription and, if, you know, using it as it's prescribed and not deviating from that. Right. And that being okay versus, like you said, A, you got to be genuine with yourself. Uh, if this is the only method to which you can live because nobody is going to live in misery, 
Um, and then on top of that, you know, are you sticking to how it's being prescribed? You know, versus, like you said, maybe, oh, you're starting to slip a little bit. Right. So right. I entirely agree with that assessment. I'm going to hit the phones, Mr. Producer. I think we got enough time for a couple more calls. So let's go to... Absolutely, let's do it. All right. Hi, welcome to the show. Can I have your first name and your hometown, please? Um, yes, this is Jennifer from Redwood City. Okay. How can we help you? Oh, hi. Um, sorry. Um, I, I called the show like maybe a few months ago, and I, you gave me some really good feedback. Um, and so I thought I'd call because I'm at the end of my, my uh, treatment, and I'm starting to go for um, looking for jobs and stuff. And I un- interviewed for a few last week. And um, <clears throat> I kind of stumble um, on, like, you know, explaining, like, my um, – like my uh, my gap in between um, work, my work ex- history, and um, I just wanted to kind of, you know, get like your opinion on like how I can handle um, explaining that. And I want to be honest, you know, and um, I just don't. I think I handled it fair, fairly well. Like I, you know, I just told them, you know, I've struggled with um, with drugs for you know uh, quite a few years, and I'm trying to get my life back together, but I was wondering if you had some better um, advice on how I can handle that situation. And I'm sure they said, don't call us, we'll call you. <laughs> I mean, actually, joking. I mean, I did, no, I actually, I, I did get two job offers. It, it ended fa- fairly oh, well. Wonderful. I'm just like waiting for my background to come back, my background check. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, I can't help but think back on, like, how could I have done this better? And, um, you can, you, know, you can so walk maybe... in. I was going to say, you can walk in not, think, not thinking or believing that your experience, okay, this is how you have to frame the perspective is very important. Your experience of your previous lifestyle. It was an experience that you endured, that you engaged in, okay? It's not something for you to be ashamed of. People may respond to your truth is out of your control. But you have to be able to stand in your truth. Right. And when you can do, when you can do that, you can speak to it with uh, an energy that someone can pick up from you that, wow – She's not ashamed or embarrassed about this. And as a matter of fact, speaking about it in such a way that it was a life-changing experience for her and where she's going now is totally different from where she was two years ago, three years ago, five years ago, or even a year ago. So people can pick up on that based on how you bring it forth. But it starts with you internally. And I think that I did do that and I maybe maybe the reason why like I you know I have been kind of struggling with it was like I just I'm just wasn't sure if that's like how I should have uh, you know should have been in an interview but you telling me that like that that's a good thing it kind of gives me yep. more confidence um so that's that's good to hear um and then like the you know 
I do, at the end of every interview, they always say, ask, you know, do you have any questions for me? And um, I did ask, I did ask a question, but I after I left, I was like, gosh, I wish I would have had better questions, you know, to ask. And um, I was wondering if you can give me maybe <laughs> some questions to be able to ask at the end of an interview. I can't give you specific questions, but I can tell you what you should do, especially in this hmm. day and age, this is where you guys have a big advantage over us older folk, is that you guys can go online, you can research the companies that you're applying for, and from that, you can come up with questions that you might want to ask. Well, that's a good idea. You know what I'm saying? Tied to mm-hmm. whatever the position is that you may be applying for, i.e., is, you know, what are your, um, your growth opportunities? You know, can I advance from this position to a, to a higher position, things of that nature? Gives you an idea whether or not it's a company that, you know, promotes from within, offers, you know, upward mobility and things of that nature. Right. Right. Cool. Okay. Thank you. All right. I appreciate, I appreciate your, uh, your insight. All right. Thank you. Have a good day. Bye-bye. Bye. You too. Bye-bye. All right. I know we're short on time, Mr. Producer. Let's go right to our next caller. Hi. Right. Welcome to the show. Can we have your first name in your hometown, please? Hello? Hello? Can we have yeah, your first you name in your hometown, yeah. please? Uh, JT from San Francisco. Hey, welcome. How can we help you? Okay. Um, I struggle with like entitlement issues, and I seem to not care about anyone but myself, even three months into my sobriety, and I'm in, like, my first program ever right now, so I was just wondering if you guys had any advice. Yeah, man, uh, back in the day, you know, the the, the good old-fashioned belt is what people would use for, for people like you. The belt. Okay. I've had more than a belt, though, before. And you said, I struggle with entitlement issues. Well, that's what everybody at this program seems to be telling me. How old are you? 30. Hmm, okay. You're right on that. You're right on that line. Okay. Why, why are others, and if you can tell me quickly, why are others saying that you have entitlement issues? Just because they say, like, I seem to do what I want and not care what the consequences are. and Is that just, true? Yeah. Somewhat, yeah. Okay. The first, the first step here is just being honest about who, who, who we are. That's all. Okay. No shame. All right. Now, what you, have to, now what you have to do is you have to look in the mirror and say, is this what I want to be at age 30? Mm-hmm. Because that kind of behavior and attitude is appropriate for age 14 and 15, mm-hmm. not age 30. Yeah, exactly. That's what I was thinking too. But, okay, all right. So that's why we joke. It was a joke when we say about the belt. Because okay. back in the old days, the parents and the grandparents would make sure the child would not grow up with a sense of entitlement and would grow up with a sense of gratitude instead 
and mm-hmm. take that into adulthood, okay, mm-hmm. and understand that they couldn't do what they wanted, say what they wanted. There was a time and a place, and learn how to be responsible, learn how to be accountable, understand consequential thinking, things of that nature. All right. You're a little bit behind at age 30. Well, according to the other people at this program, I don't seem to agree, but now that you say what you said, I'm really starting to lean towards not agreeing with them, so I appreciate your call. Well, you called us. I mean, I appreciate your help. I, I felt All right. <laughs> All right. You. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. All right. Mr. Producer? Yeah, in the eyes and hearts of others. <laughs> we we have a 15-year-old, 30-year-old. That's right. Well, um, that's what pairs are for. Exactly. One way or the one way or the other, they have to get you to open your eyes to uh, who you are. That's the role that they, that's their job. It's hard for us to, to, to see ourselves as other people see us on the positive or the negative. So he's kind of, he even sounded a little uh, immature. <laughs> a little so, bit. So I was surprised. I was I was hoping he was going to say, "Oh, I'm 21, I'm 20, something like that, something I can work with." But 30 kind of threw me off. Yeah, that's all right though. You can get what he needs right. to get. Be open. For those who uh, we're doing our uh, manual call screening. And I think I only got about uh, two minutes left, Mr. Producer. And there was another question I wanted to get to. Or I can chance it with another call. I'll let you make the call. Well, you do a lot, say, more, you know, you do a lot more gambling than me. Two minutes is the cutoff. You don't want to, uh, you know, we don't want to rush or rush through a potentially, you know, good question or question that could help somebody. So we can just shout out anyone who's on hold listening to the show. Give us a call back. For our next show, I assume two two weeks from now, and then we can uh, maybe wrap up with a brief thought in our music or the the question that you got on X Files, where there's not a live human relying upon it at this moment. Mm-hmm. Um, Sean from San Mateo, we'll wrap it up with this one. That's a good question. Are addicts bound to be mentally altered after drugs have, <laughs> these are his words, by the way, have ravaged their minds and bodies, or can they be healed, completely restored to their former physiology? I take offense to the words ravaged, by the way, or the word ravaged, <laughs> to the use of that word. Um, it depends. I think you remember Mr. Producer, me telling you sitting in the living room at Swan Lake and seeing, you know, two groups of people, both of them who used heroin, but they look totally different. 
Yep. One group, you can tell, boy, they, they had a hard life. And the other group looked like they spent their time sunning themselves in Barbados. It all had to do with the lifestyle. So one group was That's living right. that lifestyle, being in the street and, you know, just dragging themselves down physically, emotionally, mentally. The other, you know, they were, they were functional addicts. They were working. They could afford to buy good heroin, and so it wasn't so you know destructive to the body, et cetera, et cetera. But it depends on what you use, how long you use it, what's the circumstance of your you know your your lifestyle um, while you're an addict. Too many variables to say, but I will say this. Uh, this methamphetamine that has come on the scene since the mid mid to late 90s, especially out in the West Coast. I don't know how big it is on the eastern seaboard yet, but um, that's something else in terms of, of what it does to the mind, body, and soul. That's exactly right. And I'll, I'll leave it at that. Well, All Mr. Right. Producer, I'll let, well, you, I'll let you do... Since you're since you don't have any controls today, I'll I'll still let you do your formal sign off, but I'll be the one at the uh, at the controls. Lovely, lovely, great. Well, I think it was a great show. Definitely sabotage, saboteur is something that needs to be touched in our field. Uh, as always, we appreciate the ongoing and continued support we get from our listeners out there. Those who called into the show to listen in to what we had going today, as well as those who called in to participate in the Recovery Sport Time segment. Uh, we always do enjoy that kind of an audience, and this is why we do the show in the first place. Uh, that said, we wish everybody a safe and productive couple of weeks, a fun couple of weekends, and we will see you all two weeks from today. Enjoy the music.
That's our show for this evening. Thank you for listening. Be sure to listen to our next broadcast Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time on blogtalkradio.com forward slash OCG Radio. Like us, friend us, and follow us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash OCGWorkCA and on Twitter at OCGWorkCA. You can listen to podcasts of all our shows on iTunes under Roach on Recovery or on our Blog Talk Radio homepage. This has been a presentation of OCG Recovery Radio. With Lucky Landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.